For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. We bow before your humble, your sovereign, majestic throne as Lord of the universe. And we confess our fallenness. We confess our selfish pride, our self-righteousness, where we have created idols that reflect ourselves and our heart and our desires. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, nor have we loved the Lord with any of our heart, with any of our soul, with any of our might. We confess we have marred your beautiful creation. But Father, we thank you that though you would have been justified in giving us what you deserve, eternal punishment, you so loved an unlovable people and sent your Son to die as a substitute. Father, I pray as we open up your words this morning that we will believe with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind that we may have and enjoy the pleasure of eternal life with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who trust the promises of Christ. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. In 2009... Tim Tebow wore throughout the season eye black. And on that eye black, he wrote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And before the national championship game, he decided that he would change that because of the great uh, spotlight that he would have. And he wrote, as you can see in the victory press conference, Go Gators, that he uh, said, I knew there would be a lot of people watching, and this verse represents Christianity in a very good way. Hopefully, people will look it up. Well, during the course of that game, some 94 million people Googled John 3.16. 94 million. For God so loved the world, as David and Naomi so correctly quoted it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These 24 words capture the heart of the gospel, and it is what we as adults, we teach our children in a, a Sparks, that's the first verse they memorize, and it is something that we collect and we gather and we memorize and we sing for the rest of our life because it so perfectly summarizes the heart of the gospel, a gospel that declares to us that sinners have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of Christ. That believe, sinners have peace with God by trusting the work of Christ. We, this morning, see, we'll see, I'm going to take John 3.16, and we're going to break it up into four parts. Rebellious, I'm, excuse me, a little heresy almost slipped in there. 
righteous God, see how that happens sometimes? Righteous God, rebellious man, Jesus the Redeemer. I tried to start with the R word to have really good alliteration, but I, I just it couldn't, it was all clunky. Jesus the Redeemer and reconciled believers. Righteous God, rebellious man, Jesus the Redeemer, and reconciled believers. When we look and we understand the first two words of John 3.16, for God. When you think of the word God, when you hear it, what do you think of? What comes to your mind, to your thoughts, what experiences, what phenomenon, what feelings come to your mind? Do you think of an all-powerful deity? Do you think of the unmoved mover? Do you think of a cosmic force? Do you think of a delinquent dad? Do you think of love that exists between nature, between man? Do you think of nature itself? Do you think of a reflection of you and who you are? Or do you think of nothing at all? When per people say the word God, on television, on the radio, even in the pews as we talk about God, we don't, aren't always saying the same thing. Most of the time, we're saying some reflection of when, and along the lines of when I think about God, I like to think of, and then you fill in the blank. Maybe the, the ultimate chess maker, the creator, the, the, and something that you like to think God of. Often what that means is they have created God in their own image. And as our heart, Calvin says, our hearts are idle factories. We have created a God that we desire and a God that looks like us. Therefore, probably the better question as we open up the text this morning is who is the God of the Bible? Who is this God that reveals himself to creation? And then we, as we read through the pages of Scripture, we either say, I will not follow that God, or I will submit to the God as he has revealed himself. The God of the Bible is a self-defining God who has chosen to reveal himself. And if he had not chosen to reveal himself, we would never be able to know his heart and to be able to know his nature. And so as we think of God, how he has defined himself in Scripture, we think of the work of God and we think of the Word of God. And as we begin, we properly think of God, we must start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible reveals God as the Creator. As the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Everything from the most infinitesimal electron to the enormous supergiant star V.Y. Canis Majoris was created by God. From the insects that swarm beneath the surface to the birds that soar high above it. From the creatures that swim at the depths of the ocean to the animals that scale the lofty heights of the mountain. From the deserts in Africa, the jungles of Asia, the peaks of Europe, and the grasslands of North America. Everything was created by God and for God's pleasure. 
God as creator loves to look back and look at the beauty and the intricate nature and the, 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 uh, of his creation as the animals uh, uh, run and jump and swim and soar in heaven and they dance on earth. They give glory and honor to the magnificent creativity of the, their creator. Romans 1.20 says this, for His, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. And how have they been clearly perceived? Since the creation of the world in the things that He has made. So we, they are not without excuse. When we see the Matterhorn that is high in the heavens, when we see the vastness of the Pacific, when we see the intricacies of the human body, we step back and say, our God is amazing. He's intricate. He's spectacular. He is glorious. And we give Him honor. We repeat the refrain of the hymn writer, O Lord my God. When I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand has made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe is displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. When we think of God, we think the beauty and the majesty of creation that he has made. But then also we see but that doesn't reveal to us the heart of God, the nature of who God is, how we approach Him, how we have a right relationship with Him. We're, but God does not leave us to frivolously wonder and aimlessly speculate about what the heart of God is like. But He has revealed His holy nature and His perfect will in His law, in His moral law that He has given. In God's moral law, we see the perfect righteousness of God. We see His majesty and His glory. He is the source of all that is good and all that is beautiful and all that is true. And we say as we read His psalm, as the psalmist in Psalm 16 said, You make known to me the paths of life. In Your presence there is fullness of joy. Joy is not simply in the experiencing the creation ahead, though there is great joy in good music and good food and, and running and relationships and all these good gifts our Father has given us. But all of these things are meant to draw us to the heart of God, the source of all good things, at your right hand, in your presence, in fellowship with you, there are pleasures forevermore. The glory of God is seen not only in His work, but in His Word. Nothing in creation compares to the majesty and glory of an infinite God. The God who we're designed to find our meaning, our purpose, and our significance in. I love St. Augustine, not the city though, it's great, but I love the writings of St. Augustine when he says, great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom. There is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have made us for yourself, 
And our hearts are restless until they rest in You. We have been created to desire and long and to bring glory to our Maker, to find pleasure and joy in knowing God and enjoying the pleasures of God. For it is the Gospel that reminds us, that proclaims that sinners have peace with this glorious, majestic, righteous, powerful, holy God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. Not only do we know a righteous God from John 3.16 for God, but the next few words say, so loved the world. We see the heart of rebellious man. And when we see for God so loved the world, there are probably six of the most grossly misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. Because we naturally ask, what's not to love? We're the self-esteem generation. We're raising children to love themselves. And they believe the world centers around them. And they, when they say, God so loved the world, they say what? Duh. I'm, I, I'm a great guy. I'm a great gal. What's not to love? But when we step back and we see the whole of Scripture and what Scripture teaches us concerning the nature of God and the nature of man, we then see the beautiful, spectacular nature of the love of God and we stand in awe of God's amazing grace. When you look at to the mirror of God's law, you cannot comprehend the heights of God's love because you trivialize the depths of man's sin. Sin is not bad choices. Sin is not a misunderstanding. Sin is not negative thinking. Sin is not differing cultural norms that collide. According to the Bible, sin is rejecting and ignoring God in the world that He has created. Sin is to rebel against God by living without reference to Him. Sin is to refuse to be or do what He requires in His law. Sin is to declare to God, you're not good, you're not uh, righteous, and you can't be trusted. I can only trust myself. The very thing that Adam and Eve said. Did God really say, the serpent whispered, and, uh, and, and Adam and Eve said, I think He did, and I don't trust Him. And they trusted themselves, and they turned inward. Notice in John 3, verse, a couple of verse later, verse 19, we begin to see the nature of this world that God has loved and we see the response in their relation to God. This is the judgment. The, the, the verdict of the judge of the universe, God Almighty, has said this. The light has come into the world. We will understand that. Not letting the cat out of the bag, but the light is Jesus. And the people love the darkness rather than the light, and, did not, and does not come to the light, lest His works be exposed. See, Ocean Park, we were created to find our joy and our satisfaction in the goodness of God. But all mankind, every man and woman, child, grandma and grandpa, in one way or other, has traded the righteous glory of an infinite God for their own prideful glory and self-love. Like insects that crave the darkness under a rock, 
We flee the penetrating light of the purity of God's light when it shines upon us. We as a people have called, uh, declared what God has declared evil to be good, and we declare what God has called good to be evil. Rather than finding eternal satisfaction in the uh, spring of living waters, we trade God's goodness and beauty and truth for fleeting idols and functional saviors that will never satisfy us, but rather are salt water to our thirsty souls. Every sip at the, at the, the fleeting feet of an idol is bringing us closer and closer to the precipice of eternal destruction, and that is what we desire. Over and over again, we believe the empty promises of pleasure and power and possessions that will never satisfy us. We create idols, not the idols of yesteryear, which are wood and stone, but idols of Wi-Fi and square footage and waistlines and compound interest and party affiliation. We fix our hope and our satisfaction and our security on things that our eyes can see, that our minds can understand, and our hands can touch. Our idolatry has brought nothing but death and disintegration to God's good creation. We have neither the right nor the freedom to be or do whatever seems right in our lives. We are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our soul. We are not free to think of God in any way we choose, imagine, or desire, nor worship Him in any whim or fancy that we, we create. And as God, who is righteous and holy, does not pat us on the head and say, that's no big deal. He doesn't brush it under the rug. He is, there's not a hung jury. There is not a lack of evidence. God neither ignores and or, nor tolerates sin. He doesn't idly stand by while His law is trampled, His holiness mocks, and His creation is defaced and defiled, but He declares through the pen of Paul, and this is the bad news of the Gospel, and believe me, there's good news is coming. They will suffer, those who disobey God's law and spurn His goodness and refuse to uh, follow Him. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Those words are bitter and heavy and should weigh on our hearts. This is God's righteous declaration and God's promise towards sin that he is righteously angry about the right things in the right way, and he always keeps his promises, and he will punish sin. Now we could easily say, so God could easily say to us, well, if that's what you want, then have it your way. You hate the light, you love the darkness, the whole approach to life is sin, and then fake happiness. You refuse to be honest, you can cling to your self-created falsehoods and, have, and, and you cannot have my massive love as well. This relationship is over forever and God has the right to say this. And who would blame him? 
But this is where the good news and the bad news of the cross comes in. There is nothing in the world, mankind, in any of our hearts that attracts God to us, to love us. It is everything that is in him that causes him to love us. God so loved the world, not because we were lovable, but because he is love. One of the greatest expressions of the nature of God is found in Exodus 34. People have just committed the the violation of the law with the the, uh, golden calf, and God, God himself passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and then see what this is, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God so loved the world, but he hates sin. And the gospel declares that a righteous God loved a rebellious man. And the gospel tells us and reminds us over and over again that sinners have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of God. A righteous God, a rebellious man, and Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. In Genesis, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. In Genesis chapter 3, when the devastating effects of sin were first introduced into the garden by Adam and Eve's rebellion, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. The promise was that the offspring of Eve, this offspring of the woman, would come and crush the head of the enemies of God, would destroy this sin. That promised snake crusher would one day come to usher in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. God's anointed one, his Messiah in the Hebrew, in the Greek, Christ, would rid creation of the thorns and the thistles that have cursed the ground and restored peace between God and man and man and man. A vertical peace with God and a vertical love with a man and his neighbor. And that anointed one was God's only son. The word only here is to show the uniqueness of Jesus. He is irreplaceable. There is no one like him. There is no other savior. The world has no hope. Even in Obi-Wan Kenobi, for you Star Wars people. No one else is coming. It is only the Son that God has sent because He being righteous so loved a world that was sinful and depraved and rebellious and wanted nothing to do with His law, but God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And without God's only Son, sinners have only despair today and damnation forever. Yet God gave His only Son to be the Savior of the world, to be the Redeemer of His people. God's only Son was fully God. 
And because he was fully God, he was able to perfectly obey and perfectly suffer on behalf of the people. His obedience was perfect. Jesus was able to perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. He loved the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus was righteous, unlike you and I, unlike a sinful world. His obedience was perfect because he was fully of God and his suffering was perfect. Jesus bore the righteous anger of God against sin in the world that a mere human would have been crushed under the weight of it. Only the Son of Man could bear the weight of the wrath of God. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And because he was fully man, his righteousness was a representation of mankind, his brothers. And he was a substitute, just as uh, a representation of mankind, just as in the Olympics we send runners and swimmers and sprinters uh, and, and skiers to other countries to represent our nation. Jesus, being fully man, represented us before a righteous God. He satisfied God's demand for righteousness and God's just determination for punishing sin. Jesus paid the penalty that humanity owed. Jesus, God's only Son, lived a righteous life that we could never live, and He died the guilty death that we deserve to die. His life, His death, and His physical resurrection, Jesus fulfilled every demand of the righteousness of God. He atoned for our guilt. He satisfied God's wrath against us. He conquered death on our behalf. He was a willing substitute for us. For our sake, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, made Him Christ um, to be sin on the cross who knew no sin so that in Him those united to Christ by faith would be able to become the righteousness of God. There are two places. uh, This past couple weeks I've been teaching the children the catechism. There are two places where God deals with sin. And God punishes sin. The first one is hell. Hell, where sinners are justly and grievously punished forever, and that should cause our hearts to be weighed down. But the second place where God punishes sin was at Calvary. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Ocean Park, when Jesus declared, it is finished, he was declaring that everything that was necessary to bring peace with God had been accomplished. The work was completed. In a moment, Nancy's going to come up and we're going to sing in Christ alone. And it says, in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied 100%, not mostly 100%. Why? For every sin. Known sin, blatant sin, and the hidden sin that is in our hearts 
that we are so ashamed of and then the sin that is in recesses of heart that we don't even realize. God sent his only son to redeem his people from the punishment of their sinful rebellion. And it is this gospel that declares and proclaims that sinners have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. Not only is God righteous and man rebellious and Jesus the Redeemer, but believers are reconciled in our final clause, for whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There are only two responses to the work of Christ on the cross. A belief that brings eternal life an unbelief that leaves you in the presence, leaves you in God's just punishment. Notice a few verses later. Whoever believes in Him, Jesus, is not condemned. They do not receive the righteous condemnation for the sin that they deserve. But whoever, it continues, does not believe is condemned already. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. There is no box to check none of the above. You either believe in Christ's finished work on the cross or you do not. According to Scripture, as God has revealed Himself. But the question becomes, because in a day and age where words must be defined because words have a Unfortunately, a plethora of meanings. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus is to trust Christ's completed work with all of your heart. To believe in Jesus is stop hiding from God and resisting God. To surrender your autonomy. You are no longer Lord of your own life. Jesus is. And that throne room of your heart, you expel your rebellious cosmic treason, and Christ reigns. He now is the center of your world, and you, you seek to honor Him and bow down to Him in thought, in word, and in deed. When you recognize, and, and another one and is good Baptist, we always need a good gambling analogy, you push all the chips on the table and all the money is on Jesus because there is no other option. When you recognize the incredible work that Jesus has done for you, you hurl yourself at the foot of the cross as your only hope in life and death because you are not your own. You belong to Jesus. As Augustus' top lady in his wrote, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Fall I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Those who believe need real forgiveness of real sins by a real Savior. Therefore, as Jesus' words in Mark 1.15, repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. To repent means to turn away from your rebellion against God, a.k.a. your sin, to your, uh, your desire, your treasured habitual sins that God has declared evil, but that in our rebellion we cling to. To repent of that is to let go of those things and turn away from those. It does not mean that you will never sin again because your flesh 
flesh will. But repentance means that you will never again live at peace with your sin. Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do in this struggle where it's a constant daily action of repenting against the sin that we hate, but we're drawn to because we're sinful people. We repent of the sin, but we don't just say no. We say no to our sins and we say yes to Jesus. To believe is to trust Jesus that what He did on the cross was sufficient for you. To be convinced that Jesus stood in your place because you were guilty before the judge of the universe. That Jesus took the entirety of your punishment that you could not fulfill. That He gave you His perfect righteousness. And now when you stand before the Almighty God judge of the universe, He doesn't see your sinful wretchedness. He sees the righteousness of God because you are united to Christ by faith. You believe what the promises of God are true. To believe in Christ is different than the horizontal righteousness. The difference between eternal perishing and eternal death is not your goodness on earth or compared to the people around you, because you'll find people around you that are a lot worse than you. But you'll know the difference between eternal punishment and eternal death is your willingness to repent of your unrighteousness and trust Christ's righteous sacrifice for you, that you may have peace with God. D.A. Carson, great theologian, he's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the um, Gospel Coalition. If you find a book by him, read it. It's awesome. Hell is not filled with people who are deeply sorry for their sin. It's what we think. Oh, oh, I should have done it this differently. They're singing Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. And that hell is filled with people for all eternity shake their puny fists in the face of God Almighty in an endless existence of evil and corruption and shame and the wrath of God. They refuse to believe they have a problem. They refuse to believe that they are accountable to God and they shake their puny fists. But it's the gospel that declares and proclaims that sinners have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. So as we listen to this, in John 3.16, there are, try to imagine, three groups of people that hear this this morning. There are unbelievers. People this morning who refuse to humble themselves and be saved by the cross. People who may not, I didn't know I had a problem. I didn't know that sin was a problem. I was just going on my merry way. And poof, this truth claim in Scripture hits me. And they struggle with that. And that's some just dismiss it, those crazy religious folks. Some refuse to believe their sinful state. I'm not as bad as the Bible says I am. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. What's not to love? Those who refuse to believe that Christ's death brings his people life, and they say, you know, that's good news, but there's got to be a catch. What's the fine print? And those who refuse to let go of the sin that is destroying them, they say, God's love sounds good, but I love my sin. I could never give this up. I ask you today, I beg of you, refuse to believe in Christ no more. 
To refuse to believe in Christ is to remain in your sin and perish according to what Scripture says, not what I say. Repent of your sin and believe today. Turn to Christ that you may have eternal life, that you may know God and have fellowship with God and have purpose and joy and satisfaction that is not compared to anything that this world can offer. Do that today. To the nominal believer, many people pay lip service to Christ, but don't live believe in their heart. They, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. Brother, we're in the South. Everybody believes in Jesus. I, I sometimes in evangelism, give me a pagan that it, just straight up. I don't believe in Jesus. Let me talk to them. Sometimes you have to talk people out of their so-called salvation to be able to come and realize that they are a sinner and they need Jesus. And then the gospel opens up. Look at, I want you to look here, though, into John chapter 2, as I know time is waning. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. Jesus is speaking right now to those nominal believers who pay lip service to Jesus, but they, there is no love for Christ in their heart, no adoration, no desire for him. Notice in John 2, a couple of verses, chapters maybe to the left, 2, 23, and 25. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, notice what it said. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs and wonders he was doing. This guy's amazing. He opens the eyes of the blind. He, he raises the dead. He does all of these things. This guy, he's, this is amazing. I believe in Jesus. But here's, here's the amazing part of this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That is entrust, I'm not sure why the, the translators do this, same exact words. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Look at here. Because he knew all people and, and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. There are many people who followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. He performed signs and wonders. He was a profound teacher with authority. He opposed the religious leaders who they hated, and they loved to see Jesus send those zingers over to the Pharisees. They're like, this guy, I like him. I'm going to go tweet some of the stuff he just said. Then they did not believe. Yet in their heart, though they believed in Jesus, they did not believe in Christ's primary reason that he came to pay a ransom for their sin. There are those of you this morning that say you believe in Jesus, but there is no heart change, there is no desire, there is no love. It is an outward expression of, of nothing. Repent of your self-pride and your self-righteousness and your self-love and turn to Christ that you may live today. And devote yourselves to following Jesus that you may have life now and have it abundantly and have the promise of eternal life because as Sinatra sang another song, the best is yet to come. We spoke to unbelievers and nominal believers and then genuine believers. You know that you're a sinner and you know that you have a great Savior. Every day is a new day that you struggle to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Seek to know your Savior. Devote yourself to following his, commit, his kingdom and fulfilling His commission. Pray that the Lord would reveal your heart and your sin and break the, break the strongholds of pride in your heart. Seek to know Him more each day. 
to know the unearned, amazing grace of Christ, enjoy peace with God, and drink deep of the pleasures of knowing God. And then tell. Tell other hungry beggars where you found bread. The bread of life and the well of living water that brings satisfaction to your soul. Proclaim the good news of great joy, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. For that is the gospel that proclaims that sinners have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus.